Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this episode, the first of a two-part series, Elizabeth Newton and Franklin Bruno discuss the ins and outs of the bridge in popular songs. Hey everyone, I'm Elizabeth Newton, a writer and musicologist. I'm here today with Franklin Bruno, an interdisciplinary writer and musician. Since 1990, Franklin has released 20 albums of original songs, and his poetry, music criticism, and research appears at venues from the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism to the 33 and a third series, for which he wrote a book on Elvis Costello's Armed Forces. I first encountered Franklin's work when I came across an article of his in which he theorizes the ontology of pop music. Arguing against accounts that center recordings, Franklin defends popular song as an entity all its own. In Franklin's forthcoming book, he traces the history of pop song through the bridge, a short section of music in the middle of a tune that serves as some kind of transition. Historically, the bridge developed as the B section of a 32-bar A-A-B-A form. In contemporary pop music, we often think of a bridge as something that happens once, after a few alternations of verse and chorus, before a final repetition of the song's hook. It turns out that bridges are where a lot of pop music's magic happens. As Thelonious Monk was said to have put it, the inside of the tune makes the outside sound good. So Franklin, my first question for you, in your book, how do you define the bridge? Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks a lot for talking to me and suggesting this. So the quote that you mentioned is something that Thelonious Monk is said to have said to Steve Lacey uh, in the 60s when Lacey was in Monk's band for a while and learning his music. And uh, this is one of Monk's few comments on sort of uh, compositional uh, form. And if you know Monk's music, it makes sense that he would be talking in terms of the bridge because many Monk tunes from around midnight to Well You Needn't are in the AABA form you describe. So that's why I used the inside of the tune as the title of the book because Take It to the Bridge, famously from James Brown's uh, Sex Machine, was a little bit too easy. So this is a, a little bit less familiar, but equally striking sort of representation of what the bridge is. So uh, my working definition of the bridge is a section or passage of a song recording or performance. I want all of those ontological categories to be on the table in different cases that works within the whole of the song form or musical form to produce effects of contrast, transition, and retransition. And contrast is probably the easiest of those to express. Something different happens in the bridge. Normally the, the melody is different, most obviously. The words are different. There's often some degree of harmonic contrast, although not always, as I hope we'll, we'll see in some examples. But frequently in some traditions, in some genres, the bridge frequently modulates or at least has different chords or the same chords in a different order or a different harmonic rhythm. There's often some contrast along that parameter. And in rhythm, the rhythm arrangement might be different. You might have stop time in the bridge. You might go from a straight four to a swung feel or a Latin feel or vice versa, as in um, Dizzy Gillespie's Night in Tunisia. And increasingly in popular music, since the rock era, the bridge is often 
a site for changes in arrangement and production and uh, timbre and texture. Although I shouldn't say that those things are, are never the case in pre-rock music. So contrast, I want to be very general uh, along just about any possible musical parameter. And it can also apply to the lyrics too. The, the lyrics can express uh, an alternative viewpoint they might be in a different grammatical form, and also they can be prosodically different. The rhyme scheme might be different. The syllable count might be different. So all of those things are in play as to contrast. Transition is the general sense, and it's hard to express this without very commonplace, but in some ways questionable musical metaphors. The sense that the bridge is taking you somewhere else, that you're going somewhere, that it's uh, on a route, on a trip, and probably somewhere other than where you thought the rest of the piece of music was going. And then retransition is the notion that what happens at the end of the bridge is that it turns out that where you were going was uh, where you started, right? What happens at the end of most bridges? You get another A section in the AABA form you mentioned. Uh, and in the monk tunes I mentioned, and in Night in Tunisia, or in pop rock forms, usually another chorus, or maybe a verse in a chorus comes after the bridge. So you're going somewhere, but it turns out that the bridge is leading you to a return, uh, a, a reprise of something that, that already happened. And another point about that is that there's almost always some kind of gesture at the end of the bridge that highlights that retransition. It's, it's a moment of drama often, and that can be done a number of ways. Often there's a harmonic link, maybe most typically the bridge will end on the dominant, usually the, the five or the five seven, but other substitutions. And again, big generalization, and then going back to the tonic at the start of the next section. So, you know, a five one or dominant tonic cadence is very common at that point. But there could be also lots of other things working in concert with that, such as a vocal turn or a drum fill or uh, a particular new rhythmic figure near the end of the bridge and so on. So there's, there's lots of possibilities there. So just a couple of other definitional points before we, we go on. I do want to say that my background is in philosophy, but partially because of that, I'm aware that I am not producing or really trying to produce, you know, a Socratic definition. These are the necessary and sufficient conditions for something to be a bridge, you know, sort of ahistorically, right? I, I'm hoping that it's a useful generalization about a large class of cases and uh, some, some phenomena that initially seem disparate but also I want it to be the starting point for an inquiry maybe about hard cases rather than, you know, the, the end point of an analysis. So it's just to have something on the table. Two other things that I wouldn't say are exactly definitional, but fairly important. I mean, maybe the most obvious, the bridge happens somewhere in the middle. <laughs> there can be kinds of arrangements that start with a fragment of the bridge. Uh, sometimes the bridge is reprised at the very end of the song. But in general, if we're talking about a bridge, it's going to occur at least once in the middle of the piece of music. It often, as you said, occurs only once, though there are lots of exceptions to that. You often get a full or partial reprise of sections of the songs, including the bridge. This is the case with most Beatles records before I think about 1966. And it's often a quality of turning a fairly short song into uh, a record of commercially viable length. You want to go back to the bridge at least once. Also, because it appears less often, partially, it's also sort of 
hierarchically considered less important than other parts of the songs. It has a subsidiary quality. It's usually not the part of the song or record that has the hook, that has the most catchy material that you'd be inclined to hum. If someone said, do you know that song? Some bridges are very hard to remember or sing. I always have trouble remembering exactly how the bridge of Single Ladies goes. Soul Man by Sam and Dave is a song that does have a bridge, but hardly anyone ever thinks of it, I think. So this is interesting because given that popular music, you know, is strongly associated with the ideas of immediacy and musical directness and sometimes even with simplicity, whether that's considered a good thing or a bad thing, and with mass accessibility, popular in that sense, it raises this question, well, why is there often this bit of the song that sort of doesn't obey that imperative? Why do we have this this complication? What is that for? Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about how this definition might play out in practice. And I'm thinking about a pop artist today, Taylor Swift. Um, on Spotify, fans have made dozens of playlists that highlight just Taylor Swift's bridges with playlist titles like Taylor Swift bridges that are God tier and Taylor Swift bridges that even a civil engineer couldn't build. And I, I noticed that a song that comes up at the top of a lot of these lists is uh, Swift's All Too Well. What I gather from you is that um, what listeners call her bridge isn't quite a bridge. It's really more kind of like maybe an amped up or more dramatic chorus. And so what listeners are identifying as a bridge there isn't quite what you would define as a bridge. So could you say a little more about how you distinguish bridges from other sections, such as, let's say, a pre-chorus or something? Or, or what is it that, that's yeah. going on? Let me say about that example. First of all, I hadn't heard the civil engineer playlist. I like that a lot. It is definitely the case that Taylor Swift, especially within the current economy of pop chart artists, is much more likely to have a bridge in her songs than many. And I think that's that's partially because she comes out of a professionalized Nashville songwriting uh, tradition and uh, probably came up in a kind of apprenticeship where rules of song form were, were often uh, obeyed. Although it would be interesting to look at changes within country, it wouldn't have been the case that a country song at a certain period would likely have a bridge, but I think it did become more the case uh, later, possibly the 80s. And I think that fans respond to that as actually a way of noting that she's serious or advanced in some way in her craft. There's something going on with her dedication to the tradition of songwriting. 
I'm not saying it's absent from uh, from other artists, but I, I think it's something that her fans want to uh, focus on, and and I think it's sort of related to a, a kind of auteur thing that's uh, that's been going on with her. The case you mentioned all too well is a sort of strange case in that after the second chorus, there's verse, pre-chorus, chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus. Then you hear the dominant chord, actually a big dominant chord before what might be the bridge. And then you hear what I would tend to classify as a group of variant choruses with new lyrics and a more intensified arrangement, but the same progression and roughly the same melody always ending with the title, with the all too well. I remember it all too well. And it actually ends on a tonic. She sings all too well differently. The phrase extends so that it lands on the tonic rather than going into the loop, the loop progression of the rest of the song. And then there's a kind of pause and she goes into a final verse. So it's a puzzle case. And that's part of why I want to say don't take my definition as having the force of law. In previous conversations, we talked about this question of whether it's a bridge. And I do want to say, I just happened to see her on uh, interviewed on Seth Meyers. And she said uh, in the new extended version that she's releasing on her Red Taylor's version, uh, there's a whole bunch of lines, including part of the bridge that I cut out. So she refers to it as a bridge as well. So <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that Taylor Swift is does not know which parts of the song or which parts of the song, right? But it is an unusual case in that it doesn't do some of some of those things i think of it as an intensification rather than a transition but you know your mileage may vary is all, all i'll say about that all too well is a little bit of an exception maybe we could take a more straightforward example of a taylor swift bridge i'm thinking for example of we are never ever getting back together can you talk a little bit about how the bridge works in this song Right. So this is from the same record as All Too Well, read in 2012, and I should say uh, co-written and produced by Taylor Swift, Max Martin, and uh, another Swedish producer who goes by the name Shellback. And we're just going to play the bridge, but you probably want to listen to the entire song because bridges are only bridges in context. It's a relational concept. But overall, the overall song form is that there's a verse, right, where you get a lot of details about this on-again, off-again relationship and why it stinks. And that's kind of in a conversational voice, a lot of, lot of syllables. Then you get a pre-chorus, which is more expansive and a little bit more fuller voiced and uh, different melody. And then you get the big, what you might call the breakout chorus, right, with the title, and you get that material. And then all of that is repeated. You get another verse that gives you more details. Uh, you get, I think, a pre-chorus with the same lyrics, and you get another chorus. And then something else happens, and maybe that's a good place to play that section. Okay, so you hear a few things going on there. Right at that moment, at the start of that section, the texture, the production changes radically. Suddenly, most of the rhythm track seems to drop out. 
there's a different filter on the voice. I feel like she's singing in a little bit of a different tone too in those those first couple of lines a little bit dreamy or introspective and she's singing about what she used to think about love and relationships right there's a little bit of both sides now in here i think but the lyrics are i used to think that we were forever ever and that's the first time she said forever in the song and then and i used to say never say never which is another way of saying forever right so there's this interplay in different sections of the song a lot of it revolves around the words never ever forever and together are really kind of the central nodes of the song that get permuted in different ways in in different sections so we get that couplet which also has a little bit of a different melody than any previous section it's related to the pre-chorus i think and then you get this spoken section where you hear her as though she's on the phone talking to a friend. And this is a moment of great intimacy. It gives you the sense that you're on the phone with Taylor Swift and she's confiding in you about her relationship. And this is a kind of fan service, right? This is another thing that I think is producing the strong feeling of identification that fans uh, have with her. But it's also a, a partially a generic move. There are a number of Taylor Swift songs that have partially or completely spoken bridges uh, look what you made me do there's something in shake it off and it goes back to girl groups uh, like the shangri-las uh, and there are moments like this in in britney spears and so forth so it's placing itself in a tradition as well and then at the end of that she says uh, you know this is exhausting and i love the fact that she says exhausting because she's describing the relationship but there's also a certain sort of formal exhaustion there's nowhere else now for the the record to go except for back to the chorus right where we're, we sort of run out of new stuff and what happens is she says like ever right in this mm. sassy way and then you get the big full voice now the, the full vocal production sound comes back in and you get this big no that sails that soars over the re-entrance of the chorus of we're, you know, this anthemic, we are never, uh, ever, ever getting back together. So all of those things are, are happening. And two other points I would make about this are that you do hear, like I said, there's kind of a dropout at the start of the bridge and you don't really hear the guitar part, but then gradually the rhythm track comes back in. Uh, I'm sure a lot had to be done in, in sort of digital editing to get this the way they they wanted it and the guitar part that runs through a lot of the song comes back in and so there's this sort of build back up to the dynamic level that you need to get into the next chorus and also i had to realize this even when i started thinking about the example but the bridge and in fact every section of the song is over the same four chord uh, harmonic loop C, G, D suspended, E minor, and played in voicings that keep the G and the D are sort of constantly played. And if you found the chord shapes on the guitar, you would see, oh, this is this is it. It's actually pretty easy to find. And in Roman terms, that turns out to be four, one, five, six minor. So this loop actually doesn't begin on the tonic. It begins on the four. And sometimes 
the six doesn't get played, some phrases end by staying longer on the five or the dominant. And that's what happens actually here at the end of the, the bridge. So this is an example of what I was saying about bridges often ending with the dominant, although in this case, it does go back to the four rather than the one. And there's no key change. There's no modulation. There's no change in what the harmonic basis of the different sections of the, the songs are. And one reason I mentioned Max Martin, other than just to give credit for the collaboration, is that this is very characteristic of his productions, of the teens, and of a whole chart pop style that is still with us, but may have peaked right around this time, uh, 2010, 2012, where you have songs like various Katy Perry songs and Lord's Royals and so on, where every section of the song is the same three or four chord loop. And not that Max Martin was involved in every single one of these, but I think of him as kind of like the standard bearer. And many of those songs don't have a section that you would easily call a bridge. And it's interesting that in this case, the convention of there being harmonic contrast at the bridge, a modulation or a new chord progression uh, is, is not observed. And this is partially, I think, a generic and historical and stylistic thing that's, that's happening now. But nonetheless, just about every other possible parameter is being brought to bear on differentiating this section from the, the rest of the record. So that's one of the reasons why I want my definitions to be very general so that we can take in cases over a fairly long period of pop history that don't have all the same qualities. You don't want to define bridge in terms of, oh, it modulates to another key and goes back through the five. Not, al not always true, but you have other options. So I'm thinking about these conventions that you're talking about and in this particular song, um, the way that that dominant functions in order to set us up for this climactic moment where we return to the chorus. And that moment when the chorus hits and returns, it feels to me um, like a drop. And I think that's what a lot of listeners find like so exciting about the music. So I'm curious how the idea of a drop like in dance music and in club music, um, how does that relate to your idea of the bridge? So uh, I should say right off that I do not consider myself a expert scholar in EDM. So uh, someone who is would make much finer distinctions about how the concept of the drop and the techniques of the drop work in genres like dubstep. But in general terms, what's going on in, in that music is not so much in terms of song form, right? It is creating tension and release and the, the return, right, of the beat of the full arrangement after a section where things drop out. Certainly what happened in, in pop production at a certain point is this idea got imported into uh, a more song-based idea of sectional form. And, you know, you might even as a, as a dance music purist be sort of offended that uh, pop in the sort of chart pop, pop song sense is kind of appropriating this other, other form, but, you know, that's kind of what pop does. And what I would say is, you know, in this case, you don't get the kind of thing that you get in many EDM drops where this sort of the digital equivalent of a sped up drum roll moving into, into the next section. But I do think that that moment of getting back into the higher level of intensity with the chorus is in this general category. And I think that at least in the context of popular songwriting and production, it's a new or novel means to a very old end, right? I mean, you could do something similar with a played 
drum fill or other uh, arrangement features. So this, again, I don't want to harp on the definition, but again, uh, I think this is a place where you don't want to tie the ideas to a particular genre or period, but also look at how devices that are strongly associated with different production styles or periods or genres end up fulfilling some of the same kind of very broad functional categories. In your book, you talk about soul and Motown music. And I'm wondering if maybe we could take an example from these genres. We've talked about the tune Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. What's going on with a bridge like this? This project for me hasn't necessarily been about, oh, here are my favorite bridges or here are the greatest bridges, but that's a bridge that I unreservedly love. And again, just to give the credits correctly, Smokey Robinson and the, uh, the Miracles, 1965, co-written with Pete Moore, who's one of the Miracles and the main vocal arranger for the group, and uh, Marv Tarplin, who is the Miracles guitarist, who, unlike um, a lot of the Motown studio musicians, mainly worked with the Miracles, and lots of Smokey Robinson songs kind of began, apparently, from working with a guitar riff that he would come up with. So, again, just to give a little sketch of the whole song, which, again, you know, you probably know, but you should listen to. No pre-chorus, although <laughs> pre-choruses were very big at Motown. Verse that gives various representations of what the singer's emotional situation is and that he's uh, hiding the fact that he's that he's in love and that he's heartbroken, right, under a, a happy facade. And then the chorus comes right after that. You get a, a, a triple rhyme that I won't, won't go into to the title, The Tracks of My Tears, okay? Then there's a little thing that is hard to, there's the, I need you, I need you. That happens a couple of times. People sometimes will call that a link. And then all of that repeats. And then you get the link again. And then that uh, little chord sequence continues. And it's just two chords. It's uh, C and G. The song is in the song is in G, and the verse and chorus they both start on the one. It's very one four five. Um, there's some passing chords, but it's all diatonic. And then at the bridge, you start getting this pattern. Uh, C to G with the G on an offbeat, you get a different syncopation and he sings uh, different lyrics and there's even a little bit of call and response, right? Outside, the miracles sing, I'm masquerading, says Smokey. Inside, my hope is fading. And I couldn't help when I thought we were going to do this, say, oh, look, the bridge is about the outside and the inside. It's about the relationship between the, the inner state and what, what he's showing, uh, showing the world. Anyway, it continues over the same, the same bit. Rhymes come faster now a little bit. Just a clown. Oh, yeah, since you put me down. And then you get a huge retransitional moment. My smile is my makeup I wear since my breakup with you, right, with this internal rhyme signature Smokey Robinson over really emphatic triplets 
And I happened to look at a couple of chord charts for this, which go to the record, obviously. It's usually given as those those notes, like my smile is my G, F sharp, E minor over and over. But I, I hear the E minor very strongly, and that's the only place you get the relative minor in the song. You don't hear an E minor anywhere else. And then with you, D, dominant, ready to go back to the chorus, right? Two other little things I'll point out, out about that. This is a common theme for Smokey Robinson. Tears of a Clown from a few years later is really a, a variation on the same concept. And really, especially in this song, it's, it's hard not to hear in the context of uh, racial masking uh, and uh, the, the, the understanding of Motown as a crossover act uh, in ways that go back probably to Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, and We Wear the Mask. So I think that is at work in, in what Smokey Robinson was up to here, even though it's in the frame of a, of a romantic ballad. And also those triplets that are very clear in the vocal line, different melodic rhythm than anything else that happens in the song. But you hear them echoed in the arrangement of other sections. There are triplets in the horns behind the group. And unfortunately with Motown, it's often hard to find credits. All I could, I couldn't easily find a credit for who maybe the arranger was, but it says that it was the Detroit Symphony Orchestra was playing on that. So somebody at Motown wrote some triplets for these classical musicians to play. I, I would like to think sort of noticing, oh, there's this, there's this nice touch in the bridge that we will anticipate, uh, you know, in the arrangement. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about um, this idea of masking that you bring up and what might be kind of going on in the bridge or what kind of expression is reserved for the bridge or that the bridge enables. And like just thinking about song form, I think of I think of like an aria, which is this place that's really musically rich and really impressive. But also it's a place in the narrative where someone is sharing their inner mm -hmm. um, their inner mind and not necessarily contributing to like the plot. And I'm, I'm curious how this comes up in the case of bridges. Like I can kind of imagine it both ways, either that the bridge is the place where any kind of exposition is paused and it's just a place of musical mm -hmm. richness. Or on the other hand, I can see that maybe the bridge, maybe in this case with the with tracks of my tears um the bridge is a place where something can be advanced or expressed that isn't surfacing in the rest of the song yeah i think that's tricky i mean in this song the imagery really is very unified it's not as though it's only in the bridge you understand that he's he's unhappy and i've thought that too i mean there are plenty of songs where the bridge actually doesn't say say semantically anything different and when i touch you i feel happy inside <laughs> it's just a feeling that my love i can't hide that i don't know how much that adds to i want to hold your hand but there are uh, examples where the lyrics sorry to go to the beatles maybe too many times but uh, a day in the life, right, is kind of notoriously what's going on. Paul McCartney is suddenly singing about being on the bus right after John Lennon has described terrible things in the newspaper. And then somebody spoke and I went into a dream and then you go back into the thing. It's it's a kind of outer, inner, or maybe inner, outer. Like, I don't know which is the figure and which is the ground mm -hmm. in a case like that. And in uh, We Are Never Getting Back Together, it, it, it does all the, the vocal filtering 
in the bridge and sort of the different degrees of sort of outwardness or uh, performativity or force of the singing do, I think, map how much you're supposed to see the sentiments expressed as sort of introspection. So definitely, like different parts of the, the song can represent a different mental states. And sometimes the bridge can be a place for second thoughts or ambivalence or enriching or complicating things. By the way, I don't know what opera you're seeing, but one funny comment that I've that I came across is the uh, very old school musicologist uh, Wilford Mellers complaining about uh, Rossini's arias that begin with some material, repeat it, and then have some kind of contrasting development and then end by going back to the first thing, uh, you know, with a coda to build up the applause. And he sort of so says this disdainfully as if this is very formulaic. So, you know, I'm, I'm heaping praise on the bridge, but there are also views on which this form it's sort of like, you know, it's predetermined that the bridge is going to get you back to the, the chorus. So maybe this sense that there is complexity or ambivalence or uh, development is, is a kind of uh, illusion ultimately in the service of just getting back to the hook. Visit our website for supplemental materials related to this episode at smt-pod.org. And join in the conversation by tweeting us your questions and comments at SMT underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zhang Chen Lu, with closing music by David Voss. Please join us for part two of this conversation. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>